Now, you'll want to find the uh, book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be today, in the book of Ephesians. That's where I felt the Lord uh, would lead us. So, uh, this is a special day, too, for Bonnie and I. I'll try to see if I can do this. This is our anniversary day. And uh, so it was, <laughs> amen. We were both looking real good back in those days, too. But 51 years ago, we celebrated our 50th last, last year, and 51 years ago in Spokane, uh, we said our I do's to each other, and then it's kind of been a wild ride since that. So uh, four years of seminary, four different churches, uh, three children that God bless us with, eight grandchildren that we have now. And if you are wherever you are on those chapters of life, uh, each one is unique and different. And Bonnie's dad said that the key to life is making the transitions. And, uh, and uh, I think the hardest ones that we've watched is, is when you've been together for this many years and you lose a loved one, send that loved one home to heaven and then try to figure out how you navigate that. That's, that's the hardest. And I know you were praying for someone that's just going through that right now. Um, so uh, thinking about this, when we started out, we were very, very different from each other. And I thought I was a pretty good person until I got married. Have you, did you discover that? When you start living with someone and committed to someone, I found out how selfish I was and, uh, and how much Texas pride was wrapped up in that. Because uh, what happened is I grew up in the Texas Hill Country and I was a country boy. And Bonnie grew up in Spokane, and she was a city girl. I was listening to Willie Nelson, and she was listening to The Letterman. And whoever sings it, she found out that she did not marry Johnny Angel, I can tell you that. It was like we were merging two rivers. Uh, if you took the Columbia River and the Rio Grande River, and you tried to merge the two together, all I can tell you is the first couple of years of our marriage, there was a whole lot of white water rafting going on. We were culturally different. Our personalities were different, let alone the differences between male and female, man and woman, and navigating some of those things. So how do two people say I do and keep it together on a long walk through life? Uh, that's, the, that's where we want to go today. How do two people that are both sinners say I do and then somehow merge into one and become this one flesh relationship. Uh, that takes the power of God to do that. Now, this is not going to just be about marriage, though. The principles that we'll be looking at in Ephesians relate to any kind of relational situation you might find yourself in. So how do families keep it together? How do siblings keep it together? Uh, how do people in the workplace keep it together? Uh, how do friends keep it together, because we all struggle with this, uh, this selfishness, this sin problem that we carry on board. Uh, so how do church families keep it together? Because that's the context of this Ephesians passages that we'll be looking at together. And what I discovered is a lot of our premarital counseling is taken from the book of Ephesians. So I got to meditating on that, looking at a few verses and thinking, this being our anniversary, this would be a good day to review some of those things and say, 
praise God, he has kept us together for 51 years. So, as we go to the book of Ephesians, uh, uh, we'll start in chapter 4 and verse 1. So, if you have your Bibles and you're looking there, now, I think I put it on ESV up on the screen, but if I read something sounds different, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Got started with that way back in college days when God got a hold of me and just kind of stuck with the same translation through the years. But look at how uh, Paul begins here, chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, when I looked at that, I got to thinking, there's the word walk, so God's concerned about how we live. Uh, he graciously loves us to himself, accepts us for whatever baggage and whatever mess we're bringing to him. But he loves us too much to leave us there, so he wants us to learn to walk in a different way. And we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Uh, Paul says, I come alongside you, I beg you, I plead with you, I urge you. Even, he says, I'm a prisoner. But he's not a prisoner of Rome. Do you notice what he says? He's a prisoner of the Lord, which means he believes that God is providentially in control of whatever circumstances he might find himself in. And that's a big key to life right there, too. So, um, as he begins to unpack this, uh, it's interesting, the word worthy, in its root meaning, means to balance the scales. So this is what he seems to be saying here. In light of your heavenly calling uh, and the weight of God's grace and what he's done for us, we are to balance the scales with worthy walking. Now, this is easily misunderstood. It doesn't mean that we are to do something in order to earn something. We are graciously lavished upon uh, by God in his love and then he says, in light of the weight of that grace, there is a, there's a way to walk in a way that manifests what God is doing. That the heavenly calling emphasizes the justification that we have in Christ. The earthly walking emphasizes the sanctification process accomplished by the same Spirit that regenerates us. So, this is, uh, this is what seems to be emphasized. When you look at Paul's writings, he oftentimes does that. He spent three chapters in Ephesians on sound doctrine, on theology, on uh, who we are in our identity in Christ. And then the last three chapters, he's going to go and emphasize earthly walking. And so one, uh, three chapters of indicatives and statements of fact, and then three chapters of imperatives and commands given as to how God wants us to walk. Our wealth in Christ and our walk in light of that wealth. So, in thinking about that, let me just give a summary of a few things. Look at our heavenly calling and what God has done. We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, high places, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, chosen before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption. In Christ, we have redemption, freedom uh, from sin, the forgiveness of sins, God's grace has been lavished upon us. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the guarantee from that spirit of eternal life. Ah, let's get a drink here real quick. It goes on. You move into chapter 2 and then look what it says. We were dead in our sins, 
But it was God who graciously made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were seated with Him in heavenly places. We are God's workmanship in Christ. We have been brought near to God. We've been reconciled to God, at peace with God. We have access to the Father. We are members of the same household. And I just, I ran out of space. Feel the weight of God's grace. These things we did not earn or deserve. While we were yet sinners, we were loved and lavished upon in this way. Paul wants us to feel the joyful weight of God's love and mercy and grace, and it's all wrapped up in the gift of His Son. So, in light of this heavenly calling, uh, how should we then live? Uh, in light of this weight of grace, how do two sinners stand before a group of people, say, I do, say, I will, and then go to work at learning to live together and keep it together, all I can tell you is that ultimately, as incompatible as we were, we were compatible in one thing, and that was a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who began to work in us and sanctify us day by day and year by year. Now, if you track the word walk through a couple of chapters here, this is what you begin to see. Uh, first, it's found in this verse that we're looking at, but then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 17, and says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And then 5.1, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then in uh, 5.8, walk as children of light. And in 5.15, therefore be careful how you walk. And so we're going to skip a rock across Ephesians, and then I'm going to camp on some verses that have been especially helpful to my wife and, uh, and me as, we have, as we've navigated through life together. Uh, so uh, that's, where, that's where we're headed. Now, first of all, if you're kind of filling in notes, walking worthy means that we must walk uh, in humility. So walk with humility. Let's look again here at uh, chapter 4 as it goes into verse 2. Walk in a manner worthy with all humility. With all humility. Now, I think it's because God starts there, uh, as the Spirit prompted Paul to write this, that humility it becomes the foundational heart and, uh, of everything that's going to hold two people together. Pride divides, humility unites. Pride was the central problem from the beginning. It was in the heart of Satan that initiated the rebellion. Then when he approached Eve to tempt her, he was approaching trying to stir up her pride uh, to do something independent of God. And so when Adam and Eve give in, they give in to pride. Uh, it's, a, it's pride that's at the core of it. And so you think about it, as soon as they disobey God, there are two manifestations of pride that begin to manifest. One is the, the characteristic of hiding. They began to hide from each other. They were ashamed. And they began to hide from God. So one thing that we do with our sin problem in a marriage or relationships is we tend to want to hide. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to face it. We want to cover it up in some way. So we are masters at 
rationalizing our sin, justifying our sin, minimizing our sin. And then what's the next step from hiding? What do we begin to do next? Hurl. Then we begin to hurl the blame on someone else. So when God confronts Adam, what does he do? He throws his wife under the bus. It was her fault. And not only that, God, you're the one who gave her to me. So really, <laughs> it's not my fault. It's your fault. So in a marriage relationship, our pride is manifested by hiding and hurling, not wanting to face our own sin and then wanting to somehow blame the whole problem on the other person. That's what we tend to do. I was really good at it, too. And so God had a lot of work to do, and some of that might have been related to some Texas pride from the past. I don't know, but um, this pride problem is something that has to be addressed. And so from the heart, God has to work on our hearts, and when he lavishes his grace upon us, it should produce humility, not pride. So now I know that some of you ladies are going through a book uh, called Gentle uh, and Lowly, and uh, that is the heart of Christ. And so notice the first two characteristics that are mentioned here as he goes through this list of how to keep it together. The first is walk with all humility and gentleness. Sometimes the word is translated meekness, and some people say, well, meekness is not weakness. And what I always tend to think is, I think of a 1,200-pound, uh, uh, let's, let's go up, they've got some Clydesdales out there that would probably be weighing more than that out where uh, the kids live. And so... Imagine one of those great, big, massive Clydesdale horses. And uh, what I saw from a distance is there was a little kid that was riding on top of that horse, and that was a gentle giant that was totally under control. So the word gentleness means strength under control, under control. So it's not a sign of weakness. And these two characteristics Jesus manifested at the core of his heart. He was humble and gentle. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Your burden may be heavy. My burden is light. I can handle it. It's strength under control. So how do we keep it together? Humility and gentleness. And then from there it goes on to say, with patience, so in the progression of this, this humility and gentleness produces patience, uh, long-suffering, uh, slow to, to flare up, uh, being patient with the other person, and then saying something like this, bearing with one another. Now, what I have found out is we all have our quirks. I have a six-year-old gilding that we raised from a baby, and uh, he's a beautiful horse. I mean, you look at him and think, wow, what a beautiful uh, quarter horse. But you get anywhere close to a mud puddle, and that horse freaks out. I mean, he will not set a foot in a mud puddle that is three inches deep because he thinks it's somehow the bottomless pit. Every horse has its quirks. Every person has its quir their quirks. And so when we started living together, Bonnie started seeing my quirks, and I started seeing her quirks, and then we went on a mission to fix each other's quirks. And you know, that doesn't usually work out too good. Bearing with one another's quirks. How do we do that? 
How, do we, are, how are we diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And the emphasis there is that comes from the Spirit, and He's the one that produces it, but He changes our hearts. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another's works. Frailties. We're all made of dirt, and God knows that. And the closer we get to each other, the more we see our quirks and frailties. So, now, we go on if we track this to the next uh, statement in chapter 4 and verse 17, and you come down to it, it says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So here he takes a negative perspective on saying, you used to walk a certain way, we're not walking that way anymore. But in order to change our walk, what God emphasizes is he's got to change the way we think. So the transformation or sanctification process is the Word of God is used by the Spirit of God to transform and change the children of God, and He works it by changing our mindset, our worldviews, the way we think. So we begin to think more the way God thinks and the way Christ thinks. And so if we walk like the Gentiles used to walk, it's a futile walk, it's a meaningless walk, it's a purposeless walk. Without Christ, alienated from Christ, there's, there's just no meaning to life. So, this is, uh, he were instructed not to do that. Put on the old man, or take off the old man, put on the new man in the context, that's what he's saying. There's a new way of thinking, a new way of walking. So, let's hit some of these new ways of walking. So, if you look at two verses in uh, chapter 4, verse 25 and verse 15, and compare them, this walk involves learning to be honest with each other, talking and telling the truth. Trust in a relationship is based upon truth. If either person begins a pattern of being deceptive or lying, it will undercut the relationship in that way. So, it says, having put away falsehood, speak the truth with one another. And then in 4.15, speak the truth in love. And the emphasis there is if you've got to speak the truth, double dose it with some sugar and make sure that the, we're saying it in a way that communicates that we love someone. Uh, verse 21 says that truth is in Jesus. And verse 24, it says that truth is connected to holiness. It produces holiness in there. So this is emphasized several times in the chapter. Now, how did that work itself out when two people so totally different got together? I told Bonnie, I said, okay, we are going to be totally, completely honest with each other in this relationship. And that meant, for me, anything that passed through my brain, I said it. And it wasn't long before I was working on some quirks that I wanted to change, and I just said it if something irritated me or frustrated me. And finally, Bonnie got frustrated enough that so she came to me and she said, listen, Wayne, if I am committing a sin and I'm doing something wrong and contrary to the nature of God, then I welcome you to come and confront me with that and we can talk about it and try to work on it. But if it's just me and it's just my quirks, then you're going to have to learn to live with my quirks. And so we had to establish a relationship. Just because something goes through your brain doesn't mean it should come out of your mouth. Being honest still involves discernment and, uh, and how to speak the truth in love. 
So that was a big one we had to kind of work through there. And then if you go down to verse 29, then God really begins to get uh, specific with this. Let no rotten talk or corrupting word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for building up or for edifying the other person according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. How to talk graciously. Talk truthfully, talk graciously in the relationship in order to keep things together on a long walk through life. Um, it is so easy when we are irritated or frustrated or get angry about something to begin to allow rotten words to come out of our mouth. This uh, corrupting talk that rots and tears down a relationship instead of building up the other person. And then knowing the right word at the right time and how to speak it in a way that shows grace. So I wrote down things like this. Watch out for ridicule and sarcasm and name-calling and complaining and nagging and profanity or cussing when a person is upset. You can slide back into old habits that way. We were at a retreat one time years ago, and we noticed that a number of the young couples, it was a couples retreat, and there was a culture of sarcasm that was going on, where these couples were making jokes about their mate in order to get a laugh, and everybody would laugh about it. But you know, the danger of that is there's an element of truth in sarcasm, and so it's like taking a dagger, and you're sticking somebody in the belly with it, and you expect them to laugh while you're kind of turning them. So the question is, what does your, your mate think about when they put their head down on the pillow at night saying, how many times did he stab me in front of my friends today? So if, if, you're, if you've just got a natural bent towards humor, that's wonderful, but we need to be careful that we don't take that and turn it into sarcasm in a way that is destructive to the other person. Um, so... These are things that we have to watch. Uh, you take that big horse, that big animal, and put a bit on the tongue, and you can control the whole animal by a little pressure on the tongue. But James says controlling that tongue is the most difficult thing in life. We tame all kinds of animals who can tame it. Really, only God can do it. And Jesus says he has to change our hearts because what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. He has to change our hearts in order to control our tongues. So, especially when we get angry. So what about anger? This is an interesting way that Paul approaches that when you track that down in verses 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. So this seems to indicate that there is justified anger, or there could be what you call good anger, or uh, righteous anger. Jesus got angry. But what's interesting, if you track when he got angry or indignant, is sometimes the word that is used, you never see him getting angry because of the way people are treating him or what they're doing to him. He kept entrusting that to God. But when he got angry, he got angry when they misrepresented God. Religious people misrepresented God, the Pharisees. And he got angry whenever... Children were being uh, disrespected or minimized or 
uh, put down, abused in some ways, overlooked. Uh, he got angry when people were being uh, mistreated and abused. But the, even if it's justified, notice the warning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, Bonnie and I, we would get into some conflict sometimes, but if it's midnight and you still don't have it resolved, it might be best to say, hey, time out. We'll get back at this tomorrow morning, but right now we just got to get some sleep and maybe tomorrow morning it'll look a whole lot different. But nevertheless, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And that's the, the warning there is, if anger goes underground and turns into resentment and bitterness, it is unbelievably destructive. And what it says here is, it gives the devil a beachhead. So it's like a, you envision uh, some kind of military landing. If he gets a beachhead through something that we're holding a grudge for or bitterness of, he can corrupt the entire heart of a person and capture the heart of a person if we're not careful. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I, I remember a high school camp many, many years ago. We were, Bonnie and I were counselors there. There was a young kid there, good-looking, big kid, but he had his shoulders slumped, and something was wrong. You could just tell. He was walking around with a chip on his shoulder. So finally, one of the counselors probed deep enough to find out what was going on. Why was he so angry? And it turned out that many years ago, when he was young, they were in a situation where there were a bunch of kids down by a, a river. And his son was down there, and there was a girl that was right down on the, on the, on, by the shore of the, of the river. Somebody picked up a rock and threw a rock at the river, but hit that girl in the back, and then she was screaming bloody murder. Well, the person that threw the rock dug down in the grass. When the adults looked, they saw this boy and assumed that he was the culprit. His dad got a hold of him, gave him a tongue lashing and a whooping, like you would not believe, for having thrown the rock. And so, uh, two weeks later, the father found out that his son was not the one that threw the rock. And to that day, as a high schooler at high school camp, that dad had never come back and said, son, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me for what I did? Never would do it. His pride wouldn't let him do it. And that anger went underground in this kid's life. And I pray to God that he somehow got loose from it and granted forgiveness to a father that may not have ever asked for it. But that's the danger of anger going underground. So, in verse 31, he goes on to say, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So, there is some anger that is good, but most of our anger is not justified, is not good. And so here the commandment is, watch out for bitterness. Watch out for bitterness. Bitterness is like drinking poison. It'll kill a person, makes miserable, unhappy people. So let me just ask. Nobody goes through life without getting hurt by somebody. That person that has hurt you most deeply, when I even ask the question, have you worked it through that in God's providence he permitted that pain to touch your life for a purpose and that you can take that and take it to God 
And the same God that grants forgiveness to us, you can grant forgiveness to someone who may never ask for it, may even be dead by now. But if you don't do that, here's what I've noticed through, through the years. The person that you resent and become most bitter towards is who you will become. That's what can happen. The person you hate the most and are preoccupied with that hatred and bitterness can cause a big problem. So, how do we deal with anger? Uh, in our premarital counseling, we talk about this. Some people, when they get angry, and most people struggle with it to one degree or another, you have suppressors and then you have expressors. And so, I asked someone, thank you for bringing this teapot. This, help, this is helpful. So, you turn the burner on high, there's water inside, and if uh, we had a certain kind of teapot that did not have a, one of these on it, and if you happened to be walking by when it reached the boiling point, it would squirt hot water this far out of that spigot. And so whenever Bonnie turned on that, she would, in case she forgot, she would turn it towards the, the wall to make sure nobody got burned. That's the expressor. Some people have very short fuse, and they get angry and just all over everybody, just like that. So, are you an expressor with a short fuse? And oftentimes, that person, will, for, within an hour, will forget they've even done it and forget all about it and just go on. But somebody got burned, and that's not as easy for them to do it. The other thing is, if you took this teapot, and then you decided to screw this lid on here and plug that hole in it, uh, eventually what would happen, it would, it would boil and boil and boil, and it ultimately is going to destroy the pot. So the suppressor who suppresses anger, that stuff is going to come out sideways somewhere along the way if we just keep stuffing it, stuffing it. Now, I tended a little more on the expressive side, and my wife was notorious for suppressing that, right? So we were different in this. And what we learned through the years is, God, please help me not to be quick to express it. And Bonnie, we've got to talk about this. And usually I could tell if something was going on. I'd say, okay, something's bothering you. What is it? And uh, give me the whole list. By that time, there was at least four things on the list that we had to work through. Suppressors can keep a list. And so what we discovered is God help us to put a whistle on there that releases the steam under control. So nobody gets burned, but at the same time, we somehow talk about it, and we're trying to work on the problem without attacking the other person. So better yet, how to turn down the burner. Why am I so angry? You know, God asked that of uh, Jonah a couple of times. Do you have a good reason to be angry? And the question, no, you don't. What I found was driving mine was uh, insecurity uh, about things. When I'm listening to Willie Nelson, everybody's cheating on somebody. Bonnie's listening to Johnny Angel and the Letterman, whatever it is, and this, it's this romantic ex expectation that I could never live up to. The big change in our marriage occurred when Bonnie finally said, you know, I've been looking to you to meet all of my needs and you just can't do it. 
And then she looked to Jesus to meet those needs. And all of a sudden, took a whole lot of pressure off of me. And I started doing a little bit better, maybe. But we had to learn to say, how do we confess it when we're frustrated with something, address the problem without attacking each other? So uh, use the whistling teapot. Turn down the burner. Uh, selfishness, pride, insecurity, jealousy. Those were the things that sparked my anger when I really got to looking at it. It was not rational. It wasn't justified righteous anger. So, and then look at this beautiful verse at the end of chapter 4 where this is what it says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Herein lies the secret of how two sinners keep it together for 51 years. Jesus is kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. That's the way what he's done for us. If he can give us that same kind of heart to be kind and tenderhearted with each other and ask forgiveness and grant forgiveness to each other, then two sinners can keep it together. It flows from the heart of Christ, the humility of Christ. Um, now, it means learning to say this. This is what we tell everybody in premarital counseling, the most important words you can get. I was wrong, will you forgive me? Very simple. I was wrong, will you forgive me? I can't tell you how hard it is to get to that point of genuinely, sincerely, humbly admitting that and doing that. But that's the key to two people keeping it together, asking forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Now, here's a big principle. If someone asks forgiveness and you grant forgiveness to that person for what they said or did, how they hurt you, then you cannot use whatever that was as ammunition in future battles. You know what I mean? So, because uh, sometimes we're notorious when you get into a conflict and you can pull all kinds of stuff from the past. And, you remember when you did this? Remember when you said that? Remember when you did this? Remember when you said that? And we start pulling all that stuff up and using those as grenades to try to win this war. But if it's been forgiven, buried in the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west, it's not fair to bring it up then in a future conflict. All right, we're moving. We're going to go a little faster here now. Uh, chapter 5, this is what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And it's a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. The humility of Christ that moved him to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to meet our deepest need for forgiveness. We need to walk in that same kind of love and granting forgiveness to each other. Humble heart, a gentle heart that flows from Christ, and this is what smells really good to God. So, what about walking in the light? Uh, chapter 5, verse 8, down in there. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. What is God like? He is good, right, and true. And we as His children need to begin to imitate that and reflect that uh, to the world. That's pleasing to God. The devil is the prince of darkness. The opposite is true of him. Evil, wrong, full of lies and deception. You sang about it in one of your songs. Jesus is like the sun. We are like the moon. 
And the more we focus on Him, uh, the brighter our light will be shining in the midst of a dark world around us. And then finally, walk in wisdom. Now notice what it goes on to say here. Look carefully then how you walk, verse 15, not as unwise but as wise. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It is foolish to get drunk with alcohol, but it is extremely wise to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. And what we know is that we cannot keep these imperatives apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So, we cannot walk worthy without His help. Uh, in fact, if you look at the context there, look at what happens after the statement about the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. It goes into a whole series of things, but it's talking about speaking to one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's, there should be a song going on in our hearts, uh, giving thanks and then being subject to one another. But then when you look at it, it's relationships, husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves, or employer-employees. It's all relational. It flows out of that. But it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to be able to be sensitive in positions of authority and yet submissive in positions where we are tucked under that authority, divinely appointed authority. That is what the Spirit of God helps us to be able to do. So the Galatians were trying to do it without the Holy Spirit, pumping it out, in their own power, Paul said you can't do it. Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We must cooperate with Him, aware of His presence, dependent upon His power, and sensitive to His promptings. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change the children of God. So, what kind of fruit does the Spirit produce? How many marriage problems, how many relational problems, how many church fights would be solved if we were under the influence of the Holy Spirit and He was producing in our hearts love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the sanctifying process from the inside out that God wants to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Heavenly calling, chosen in heaven to walk on earth. Wealth in heaven, walking on earth. Uh, lavished with grace, feel the weight of it, balance it out by the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and doing His work. Grateful to God. Dependent upon God. So, how do pe two people, two sinners, how does a church full of sinners keep it together? How does workplace keep it together? How does... Siblings, how do they do it? It takes the power of God to help us learn to walk together. Spirit of unity. Humility and gentleness will flow from it. And that's the heart of Christ. So, what have we learned? Here we go. Walk in humility, not pride. Don't walk in futility the way we used to it. Talk truthfully. But when we talk do it with grace and not with rotten words. Don't let anger go underground and turn into bitterness. Be kind and forgiving. Boy, we have been forgiven. Learn to love like Christ. 
walk as children of light, walk in the wisdom, in wisdom by the Holy Spirit. If you forget everything that the pastor's daddy said today, here's the one thing you need to walk away with. Young people, you're working through things as you grow in life. Here's the one thing that's most critical and important. This is what we need to model for our children when we have a conflict. Be the first to sincerely say, I was wrong. Please, please forgive me. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so for being so practical in your word and it's convicting for us all because we all fall short in these things. We're frail, made of dirt. We all have our quirks and you accept us where we are, but you love us too much to leave us where we are. And so Lord, I pray that something hits someone's heart here by the power of your spirit that would prompt them uh, to be dependent upon your power to change and to become more like Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.